0: Amen. Thank you, ladies. That was fantastic. Well, good to be with you this morning. Uh, My name is Nathan Bechtold. If you didn't know that, I am the uh, youth pastor, minister here at Riverview Baptist Church. And um, Spencer asked if I would teach this morning, and I'm excited for the chance to do that. We're going to—okay, yeah, good, so I have that slide up. I'm trying to pull my slides up here as well. Spencer actually uh, had—he said, well, you know, you don't have to run the whole thing by me, but I kind of want to know where you're generally going with it. All right, I I would oblige him that, so uh, I sent him the passage with a tentative title of Where is Jesus From? And he replied, I texted it to him and he replied back, not sure, but I can look it up for you. <laughs> and I thought, I thought this guy had a PhD in theology or something. But I think he yeah, I think he misunderstood the question. Um <laughs> so uh that's that's my that's my ridiculous title up there. Where's Jesus from? Or six strikes and you're out. I know that it's three strikes. Uh that's uh, the extent of my sports now. I like baseball, but beyond that I don't really I don't really traverse. But um, we're not doing baseball this morning. We're doing we're doing uh, six strikes and you're out in a different context. So um, Christmas season is here, right? Because Thanksgiving is over. the The day of Thanksgiving, my wife finally finally allows us to uh, put up the Christmas decor. We actually got the tree of the day before because you can't the day of, and then the day after, uh, we we you know lock the doors and stay inside on Friday. But Um, So we got the tree on on Wednesday, and and I was on the ladder yesterday and doing all that fun stuff, and I've been wanting to put everything up for months, or weeks, I'm sorry, not months. (laughs) Maybe months, I don't know, but weeks at least, and and she just, you know, was like firm on that one thing, and I, I think... I think, like, all the the angst of this fall, the election, all those things, I was like, I just need some brightness. You know, I need some, like, tinsel in my life. I just need a little little light and excitement. I just wanted those lights up early. But finally, they're up, and I am thankful for that. Um, And during the Christmas season, we spend some time uh, together talking about the advent of Christ, right? We celebrate the season of Advent. Um, and Advent means arrival. And, yes. and so during the Christmas season, we celebrate Christ's first arrival, his first arrival on the scene, and, uh, and then we use that to sort of look towards his second coming, his second arrival, right? So today we're talking a little bit about his first arrival on the scene, and maybe we're all coming from, well, I know we're all coming from probably slightly different places with what we know about that, what we know about the history of when Jesus stepped onto the scene, what was going on in the world at that time, what was the like, all those things. Some of us have a lot of knowledge about that, some of us maybe not so much. So maybe we can all just go a little further down the road this morning. That's one of my goals, to t- is to talk about where Jesus came from and what, what that place was like, but specifically where he came from. Because there's going to be this big question that comes up in the passage we're going to read this morning about where he's from. I selected this passage uh, in part because of that, because I I was reading it. It was actually being, this passage was being read to me. I often, I have a cow uh, that I milk most days, and uh, and that's, it's a a weird hobby, but anyways, and so uh, I push, I get my Bible app, and I, I listen to it while I milk the cow. It's very peaceful, actually, time in the morning, and uh, or afternoon, if I'm procrastinating that day. But uh, somebody asked me after the first service if she gives more milk when I listen to the Bible. I thought, that's an interesting question. I don't, I don't, that would be a good experiment. But, so I was listening to my Bible being read. I was reading through John or listening through John and, and listened to this passage. And I kept going back to it over, like repeating it because, I don't know, it just struck me how this theme of where Jesus is from kept coming up over and over and over and over again in this passage. And I think at first my question was, who cares? I mean, not like I don't care, but why do they care so much? Because they just kept asking this. And and as I dug a little deeper, I think maybe it becomes clear a little bit why they care, or at least why they should care. So we're going to look at that. And then we're also going to talk about all the ways that the people in this passage miss the point, which is the six strikes, right? So Um, six different, at least, times in the passage that we're going to read, the people that Jesus is encountering, is is engaging with here, completely miss the point. They miss what he's about. They miss what he's doing. They miss what he's saying. They miss that he's the Christ. They just miss everything, right? And so um, we're going to look at that, not so much to sort of, M- poke fun at them, although I, we might chuckle a little bit at how oblivious they are, but uh, actually to maybe learn a little something from them so we don't make the same kind of mistake. Um, before we read, I want to give a, a brief—that was my uh, preface to my preface. This isn't just my preface now. My, my cousin Ruth laughs. This is like a weird thing with my family. We, have to, we give like a 20-minute preface to a 5-minute story. So... Um, uh, so, I'll I, I make a couple quick observations about this passage. Jesus is at the Feast of Booths, uh, or the Feast of Tabernacles. This is a, a big celebration for the Jews, an eight-day-long, approximately celebration. Um, and they're commemorating when they came out of uh, out of the wilderness, right? They lived in they lived in these you know, shanties, out or you know, tents and things, out in the wilderness. And so they actually would construct for to celebrate this, they construct a little booth in the yard, and they'll decorate it, and they'll even eat there and things like that. So it's a it's a remembering of what God did when He brought His people out of Egypt, <clears throat> out of Egypt through the desert and into the promised land. So He's at the Feast of Booths. Uh, he's um, celebrating it in Jerusalem, which is the capital city of Israel, where the temple of God is, right? And this is the setting for this passage we're going to read, the temple. Jesus speaks three times in this passage. He also speaks one more time just before where we're going to jump in, but it's just too long, so we're, we're just taking a chunk today. But he speaks a little bit before that. We really, from John, we have four recorded uh, sort of little sermonettes or Almost, almost aphorisms, Almost, like really short little things that he says that John records there in the temple uh, during, the, during the Feast of Booths. In what we're going to read, he does three things. He, so he speaks three times, and the more I read this, I, it was interesting how this sort of lays out, and you'll see this when we read it. He explains first his beginnings, or his origin, uh, which is from the Father. Spoiler alert. Um, he comes from the Father, Two, he hints at his departure, his crucifixion, uh, that he's leaving, right? And three, he teaches about the coming of the Spirit. So we actually have this the Trinity like all unpacked, or at least touched upon, in the, in the three things that Jesus says here. He talks about the Father, he talks about what he himself has come to do, and he talks about how he's going to leave and the Spirit is going to come. So we have that happening. Uh, and then just for, for maybe some context, the last time Jesus was at the temple... He healed a blind man, which would be a great thing, and actually was a great thing, but except that he did it on the Sabbath day, and so, yeah, that's a big problem, right? I mean, for the Pharisees, they're not fans of doing anything like that on the Sabbath. At least they think they're not, right? They're very pious, and and the Pharisees are the ones that are the most studied and the most arrogant and and condemning everybody else, And, and they see that he's done this. This man born blind, and Jesus heals him. And uh, they're not happy about this. And they tell Jesus, you know, they the kind of question him about this. He says, listen, you have an animal fall in a pit. You're going to pull it out on the Sabbath. They don't tell me I can't do good on the Sabbath, right? Well, you know, he kind of shows them up in that moment. He undermines them a little bit. And they're not only embarrassed, they see that their, um, their hold on the people's uh, respect and their power is being threatened, is being undermined by Jesus. So it's, it's around that time, according to John, that they begin to go, yeah, we got to get rid of this guy, right? So that was a, f- a few chapters before where we are right now. Since then, according to John, Jesus has not set foot. We don't have a record of Jesus setting foot in the temple again, right? He's sticking to Galilee or doing it, but he hasn't, he's staying away from the temple because um, they want to kill him. They want to arrest him and ultimately they want to kill him. They want to be done with him. In fact, uh, his brothers, who are uh, not quite sure that they even believe in him at this point, I don't think they really believe he's the Christ, they say something like, hey, we're going to go up to the Feast of Booths up to, to Jerusalem, and why don't you, you know, if you're the Christ, you're this great thing, you come with us, you know, and you can, you can show everybody what you do and what you're teaching. And he says, no, you know, this is not my time to do that, and you guys go. All right. So all right, you know, and so they go. And then he crashes the party. He shows up he, unannounced, right? Just kind of like, because they're looking around for him, and then he just pops in and starts teaching. And, uh, and, and, and in so doing, actually thwarts the Pharisees' desire to, to, to get hold of him because he begins to win some people over to him, and they realize it's going to be harder than they thought to, to arrest this man. So, all right, so there's a little background about what we're going to read. Let's stand, and we are going to read John chapter 7. It's up there, verses twenty five through fifty-two. I'm reading from the English Standard Version this morning. Some of the people of Jerusalem, therefore, said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is, speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed, as he taught in the temple, you know me. And you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You'll seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me. And where I am, you cannot come. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And who was one of them said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? They replied, Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. The word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your word this morning. Thank you that you want to speak to us that you call us to yourself and that we know that you do speak to us through your word. I ask now in these moments that you would um, open our ears to hear what you would have to say and open our hearts to be shaped and changed by you. We trust that you will do that in these moments and even as we leave later. Through Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So we'll start maybe with with where he came from and why it matters. That'll be part one of this morning. Well, here's why it matters. Jesus is on the scene, having come from several different places, that we're going to talk about those specific places here in a moment. And each of these places is going to be a fulfillment of some very specific prophecies about the Christ. So the Jews are really into... The prophecies, they, they at least consider themselves to be very familiar with what we call the Old Testament, their scriptures, right? And what the prophets said about the Christ, who, who he would be, what he would do, where he would come from. And um, Jesus' uh, where he comes from is a fulfillment of some, some specific prophecies that were, that were said about him. Some of those, in fact, that we're going to read in a few minutes here are uh, ones that we often read during the, during the Christmas season the reason it matters that, he's, uh, that he fulfilled these prophecies was because ours is not just a random faith, right? We don't just commit random acts of faith. With what with with what we're doing in our Christian life, we didn't. If if you're like me, did you ever have the globe thing where you spin the? do globes even exist anymore. I don't I don't know that globes exist anymore. It's Just the Google Map thing and like zoom it out. But right, you spin the globe and then you and then you put the finger and you wait until and like where you're gonna live when you grow up or something, right? And you're like, Oh, Fiji, yes. Right, and so. We didn't do that with our faith, right? Maybe you did that with where you live. I don't know you landed at Lake of the Ozarks, but um, you, we didn't do that with, with our faith. Our faith is actually based on real events, real prophecies, real things that were said about Jesus and then were fulfilled hundreds and hundreds of years later. A real man who was one with God, who actually walked on the actual earth and actually like, healed people and did things, and then who really died, didn't just sort of faint or swoon or whatever and then kind of recover from something that you could never recover from three days later and then roll a rock away. Like, he died, he really did, and then he, and he really rose from the dead. All these things are, have I said the word real often enough here? They're real, right? They, they actually happened in our world. And so this is not just kind of a fantasy land. Our faith isn't something that Again, there's just this arbitrary like selection of, of ideas, right? There's plenty of that to go around, by the way, if that's what a person is interested in. Um, all sorts of, of, of theologies of, of religions, of philosophies. I was a philosophy major in college, and, and thankfully, it was at a, at a Christian university, a Baptist University. but uh, we study we have worldview classes and all these things, and there are all sorts of philosophies throughout the ages about uh, you know. What a, what a person is or, you know, if there's a God or what God is or, you know, is everything just fake and our bodies are imaginary, right? Or whatever, like all sorts of these ideas out there about what the human experience is and maybe what God is, all these things. That's not what we're doing here, right? That's not what this is about. This isn't just a, a philosophy. This isn't just a set of ideas that's kind of, you know, you adhere to. You may pick and choose you know, selections of it that sort of suit you. That's, I mean, that's the flavor of, of our current culture, right? It's like, select various things out of the different ones that you like, and then kind of assemble it into this horrible, like, horrible body of contradictory thought that doesn't make any sense, and it's like, oh, that's what I believe, and it's absurd. But that's not what we do. We actually believe in things that really happened, and so I, this was driven home for me in my senior year of college. I, like I said, I went to Dallas Baptist University, and I, my senior year, it was the easiest semester of my life. Uh, my final semester is, is ridiculous. I hardly went to class, and I actually am bragging about that. I, I hardly had to go to class, actually. I hardly had any classes. And uh, I, was, I got engaged to my, to my wife that semester, and, and we got married that summer. And it was, I was just floating that semester. But there was this one moment that, like, rooted me that semester. It was this spring break trip I took to Israel. It counted as three course credits, too, which was awesome. So, uh, <laughs> And so, but it was a spring break, and I had to, I had to like write one paper about it. But otherwise, like just explore Israel, right? I mean, we had a guide. I didn't just wander off by myself. But um, that experience gave me this sense that I've been saying about, about this whole thing being real. Because we walked around, and we saw things, and touched things, and... and uh, you know, I may or may not have even like taken a little sip from like a body of water out there, just to say I'd done it. You know, whatever. Like, just like you had like real human interactions with real places out there. Um, it wasn't just like a long, long time ago in a land far, far away, right? It wasn't Narnia. Sorry, that's just in my head. I've been reading it with the kids lately, right? It wasn't this imaginary place. It was a real place, and as we explored it, that was driven home really deeply for me. So you'll indulge me maybe a few photos of my, of my trip uh, just to give you a sense of what that was like for me. Um, oh, it's, well, it's not going to load, so well, maybe it will. If it doesn't load. There it is. Yeah, sweet. Um, so Jerusalem, it's a real city, right? That's it. I mean, I took that picture. It didn't look quite like that when Jesus looked down on it, but it's a real city. Um... Well, my slides aren't going to work changes, so maybe you can change it for me. Perfect. Uh, The west wall of the Temple Mount is still there, right? Those stones, the the large ones toward the bottom, like Jesus saw those. maybe touched those stones, right? This is a real place, a real historical and and present real place. We walked in the valley where David slew Goliath, the Valley of Elah. It was just this random spot. There's no, like... I don't even think there was like a sign there or anything. It was just we're just driving from one place to the other, and we stopped. That's my shadow. And We stopped and 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 the bus driver kind of pulled a, like a little pull off or whatever, and he was like, "Oh, this is the Valley of Elah or David Sue Goliath." And I'm like, "This is like the place." It was amazing. It was just this really incredible experience of, especially having grown up in church, and and not that that's a bad thing, but hearing these stories since before I can remember hearing these stories and hearing about things like you know Israel and Jerusalem and David and Goliath and these things and then being in a place where you realize these are real places these were real people I know that's maybe that sounds really elementary but it was a very like a very visceral if I can use that word experience it was very um flesh and blood and and very real and tangible so We even had the chance to pray in the Garden of Gethsemane, um, surrounded by olive trees that were hundreds of years old. Olive trees can live to be even 2,000 years old. Um, So children, or maybe grandchildren of the trees that grew there when Christ sweat drops of blood there. So, that for me drove home the reality that these things are real, right? I believed they were, but I got to taste it and feel it and walk there and pray there. Um, Jesus, we'll move into uh, to where Jesus is from here. Jesus, first of all, was from Galilee. Now, we know this to be true throughout all four of the Gospels, right? It's, it's abundantly clear. Joseph and Mary are from Nazareth area. They leave Nazareth, right, to go to Bethlehem, and then they sort of make this circuitous route back to Nazareth eventually. Um, In John, we've already seen this, Jesus turns water to wine in Cana, which is a place in Galilee. Uh, He and his mother were invited to a a wedding there, and they ran out of wine. He turns water to wine. It's his first miracle. Later, uh, Galileans are talking about how they know Jesus' mother and father, right? They're sort of marveling at Jesus and what he's doing, like, we know this guy's parents. What is going on here, right? So they're well-known in the community. They're from the area of Galilee. At, even at the beginning of chapter 7, Jesus was in Galilee, avoiding Jerusalem, like we said, because the Pharisees wanted to kill him. Now, he grew up in Nazareth of Galilee, but he grew up there, he got there by way of Egypt. And this isn't really given a whole lot of attention in the scriptures, but it is, it is there. After Jesus is born in Bethlehem, Uh, Herod catches wind that there may be this kind of new king in town or somebody some baby that the people think might be a king and so he issues this blanket Herod the Great right Um, not so great issues this blanket order to kill all the all the young babies children right in this region and so Joseph is warned of this in a dream and Joseph and Mary and Jesus flee to Egypt and they spend some scholars estimate they spend up to four or even up to six years in Egypt, uh, before Herod the Great dies, and then they make their way back to Nazareth, right? Okay, so why are we talking about that? Why does it matter that Jesus came through Egypt? Well, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, Hosea writes, uh, speaking as God's mouthpiece, out of Egypt I called my son. Right? So we have this moment of prophecy about Christ. Christ makes his way out of Egypt to Nazareth, where he grows up in his. In, um, and begins to call his disciples to himself. Additionally, right, so we know, many of us know the story of, of the Jews and that they were slaves to the Egyptians, right? They were slaves for hundreds of years in Egypt before God brought them to the promised land. And God used Moses to bring them out of Egypt and bring them to uh, a land of their own, land of freedom, although they just loved giving up that freedom at every turn, it seemed like, but a land of freedom, a land that was their own, the promised land. In the same way, but Jesus is like a, Moses is like a like prefiguring Christ here, right? Jesus is doing something parallel but greater than Moses in that he, coming out of Egypt uh, in this time, is, uh, is, is going to lead his people and, and people across the world into the freedom, not just, not just of physical bondage, right, but of spiritual bondage. So, it matters that Jesus comes out of Egypt. They don't even, nobody even mentions that in this story, right? They don't even recognize that. But Jesus does come from Egypt in one sense. He spent several years of his childhood there. So, he comes out of Egypt. He lands in Galilee. Uh, here's a kind of a, a quick portrait of Galilee. Galilee was hill country, northern Israel. It was on a huge lake. I don't know if that sounds familiar. Um... Hill country on a huge lake, and in fact, uh, they even had their own brand of hillbillies out there. I would say um, they had. I mean, it was known as kind of a podunk place. It was. It was not the center of metropolitan activity, right? Galilee was not like where all the smart and happening people went to. Galilee was filled with people that grew food and were fishermen, and uh, maybe had some uh, flocks or animals or something like that, right? And so Jesus comes out of this area. This is a region in northern Israel, almost like a state, right? And there's all these you know, various villages all throughout there. It was on the sea. we call it, It's a lake, but it was often called the Sea of Galilee. And people there were, frankly, they were just kind of simple folk by and large, right? They were Jews, very Jewish. They met at synagogue. Um, but it's, it's, this is not Jerusalem. This is not the place where the elite and the best of the best might end up finding themselves um, his disciples, as you can see in, my, in that photo there, um, his disciples are, that's a photo of the Sea of Galilee, a boat on the Sea of Galilee. His disciples are largely unschooled fishermen. They would have fished on that lake, catching largely, likely tilapia, actually, interestingly. Um, unschooled fishermen from the Sea of Galilee. Well, why is that important? Well, because the scriptures tell us that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Jesus, like, works that out even in the people that he calls to himself for his mission of bringing the, go- the good news of the gospel throughout the world. He, God, through Christ, takes on the simple, the poor, the uneducated, the sick, the weak. He takes them, he heals them, either externally or internally, and then he makes his kingdom out of these kinds of people. He doesn't take the elitists. He doesn't take the people that are the cream of the crop, the best of the best, the most well-educated. In fact, if we, in the passage that we just read, we see that the ones that are the most well-educated are the ones that miss it the most, right? God, Jesus doesn't call them. Um, they wouldn't listen even if he were calling them. And he, and he extends the message to everyone, and they don't hear it, right? God calls to himself the humble. I think he does that because his, uh, his glory and power is made all the more evident in that. God doesn't call us, he doesn't call you and me because we had something great to bring to the table. Right? God didn't call me because I was a philosophy major. I don't, That wouldn't even be a good reason to call anybody for anything, actually. But um, God didn't call you because you were smart, or because you had money, or because you're interesting, or talented, or good-looking, or whatever else, right? God doesn't call us because of those things. He may want to use those things after he calls us, but those things were not... He'd go, ah, that one would be a good one to bring in, right? And Paul, interestingly, the Apostle Paul ends up being this hilarious, amazing example of this. So, so the Apostle Paul is, you know, the Hebrew of Hebrews, right? And he knows the scriptures, he knows the Old Testament, he knows all sorts of things, and he's vehemently persecuting Christians as a result because he has so grossly misunderstood Christ. God calls him, and you would think it would be like, oh, man, God could really use Paul, like, in Jerusalem, Right? Like where all the Jews are, and like really turn the teachers back to, back to the Lord. And he sends him like all over Europe, right? To like all, I mean, he goes to synagogues and places where they are, but Paul is bringing the message to the Gentiles, to the Greeks, right? So even with Paul, God goes, I'm going to use you how I want to use you. What you bring to the table may or may not be helpful, but it's not why I called you, right? And he says the same thing to us. I think that the reason for that is so that we don't get puffed up, right? So they don't always, we don't start thinking, so I don't start thinking about myself that I bring something to God that he can't live without. Because I would be sorely mistaken if I thought that. So with these disciples, in fact, these, what Jesus mentioned, these rivers of living water that come pouring, or he said, if anyone comes to me, is thirsty, come to me, let him drink, and rivers of living water will be... And, and John, because we're a little bit dense, explains this. He was talking about the Spirit, which wasn't here yet, but it's coming later, right? Um, we see that, actually, in the verse that we read during worship time this morning in, in Acts chapter 4. We see these very disciples, some of these fishermen, uh, Peter and John, who were a couple of the men that were like literally on boats and they were like cleaning their nets, and Jesus calls them, right? And they just abandon everything and follow him. They were these smelly, unschooled fishermen. And, and people realize that very thing in Acts chapter 4, they've just healed. And an interesting passage is very parallel to what we just read in John. In Acts chapter 4, Peter uh, and John have been, have been going, in the, and, and they've healed a, a lame man. And the man is, is rejoicing, and, and he's been healed by the power of God. And, and so these same people that actually are, are going to uh, crucify Jesus, right? that are interrogating Jesus throughout the book of John, Now they've got Peter and John all these other disciples to deal with. And so they drag them out and they say in Acts chapter 4, I mean, it's like 16 through 14. You can turn there and just listen. Um, They say, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him, this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Does that sound like an uneducated fool talking? That's God speaking through a man how he wants to use him, right? And the, and the, the, the priests and who have called them before them hear this, right? This it says now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. So they're in the same place that these people are, are with Jesus in John chapter 7, right? In Acts 4, kind of a really interestingly similar passage. They're trying to find things against them but there's this healed guy standing here and they don't know what to do with, like, you know, it's like, the right, like you just like, please, maybe that didn't really happen because it just refutes everything that they're trying to say that Jesus isn't and they're trying to say that Jesus is because there's a guy with Jesus who was born blind, has been blind his whole life and now he's been healed and he, I mean, he can see, like you say, how many fingers I'm holding? He's like, three, right? Like they can, he can do it, he can actually see and that's a little bit frustrating for them. In fact, they call this guy in several times uh, when Jesus healed this blind man. Multiple times, like, all right, tell us what really happened. And he's like, I just told you. Oh, you guys want to become his disciples. You know, I don't know if he's just just messing with them right there or what, but they get very angry. It works. They get, they get very angry at him. No, we don't, you know, and they kick him out of the temple, right? So there's this uh, reality that, that, Jesus sets and that these unschooled fishermen carry on the gospel. That Jesus doesn't call to himself the elite, right? Jesus is from Galilee. He calls people, at least initially, from Galilee to come join him in his mission to bring God's mercy, love, grace, and forgiveness and healing to the world. Secondly, Jesus is from Bethlehem. Now, in John, this is actually the only mention of Bethlehem that we get in the entire book of John. Um, but we know from other gospel accounts that Jesus was born there, specifically in Luke. Um, the people knew about the prophecy that the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. It's in Micah 5. This is often one that we read during Christmas time. Uh, and it says, it's Micah 5, 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. So the people knew that one, right? And we see that in this passage because they say, well, this guy's from Galilee, but he's supposed to be from Bethlehem if he's going to be the Christ. They're trying to set up this, like, logical argument, right, or something. And, but it's just kind of astonishing because they don't actually realize... Ironically, that he is from Bethlehem, right? I mean, not most recently, but that's where he was actually born. Matthew, as well, shows us that Jesus is from the lineage of David. Bethlehem is David's town, right? It's known as the city of David. And this sort of lineage of David, born in the city of David, sets up, especially for the Jewish reader, but for all of us, the reality that Christ is bringing— Christ is the king in a new kingdom, right? Right? The kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of God, he says, he begins preaching, is at hand, right? Like, right there, like, take it. Just reach out and take it. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so, Jesus being born in Bethlehem not only fulfills the prophecy of Micah 5, but it also points to the fact that Jesus is the king. Uh, third, Jesus comes from the Father. And he points this out in. And when they say, you know, well we we know where he's from, he's he's you know, he's from Galilee, and so that you can't be right. He says, Oh, you know where I'm from. You don't know who I'm from. And the reality is that while where we are from does matter right like a conversation with someone. you meet someone often one of the first questions you ask is where are you from you hear an accent right you say well that's interesting where are you from right this is a, a common question that we ask someone and it's a way of us kind of getting to know somebody in fact where they're from maybe tells us some certain things about about them i'm originally from texas i always get surprised looks when i say that everybody because the first thing is like you don't have a texas accent and i guess i don't i uh, I don't really know why I don't have a Texas accent, but I have realized that I do have certain things about me that are very Texan. My family has been in the oil business for years. Um, I grew up riding horses and shooting guns, and have had my fair share of cactus in my various parts of my body. So, you know, that's fair enough, right? I'm Texan, right? I'm from Texas. Those are some things about me. But um, where we're from tells you a certain amount of things about me. But More importantly for Christ is who you're from. Because who you're from is what defines your mission, right? Where you're from just tells where you've been. But who you're from, who sent you, tells other people what you're about. We could talk about Jesus being from the Father all day long, right? Um, But maybe we can just acknowledge at least one dynamic of being sent by his Father it's that he models obedience. Jesus being sent by the Father models the fact that Christ being equal with God, right, Paul tells us this, did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped, but instead humbled himself to be born in a stable, grow up in podunk Galilee, and die at the hands of the people he created. He did that out of obedience to the Father. That kind of obedience is uh, motivating and humbling, right? In the moment that we think, God, don't ask me to do that, right? Or I don't want to serve that person in that way, or I don't want to make that sacrifice, right? Um, Jesus' obedience paves the way for us. It leads the way into, uh, into the obedience that God calls us to. So, maybe you guys advance a few slides up. Sorry, mine's not working up here, or else I would just be all over it. Um, Part two, we'll look at where Jesus, uh, or in this, in this conversation with Jesus, people just absolutely and utterly miss the point. And this is going to dovetail with where Jesus is from, and we're going to see why maybe they're missing the point as we look at this. So we'll do these really quickly. Six ways that people miss the point in this passage. Number one, they say, we know where this man comes from. Right? they're trying to set up this thing like we know where he comes from and so he can't be the Christ but of course the reality as we've seen is no in fact as a matter of fact you really do not know where this man comes from right like you don't know that he came out of Egypt you don't know that he was born in Bethlehem and you don't know that he comes from the Father they think he came from Galilee and that that's some kind of proof that he's not the Christ but in fact their limited knowledge is, is limiting their access to Christ right like them leaning on their finite limited knowledge is actually preventing them from coming to him they're leaning on that rather than looking at what he's actually doing and looking at what he's actually listening to what he's actually saying, and so they limit themselves. They they won't come to him because they go well, but we know where this man comes from, and so it can't be right. When in fact they don't. Number two, no one will know where the Christ comes from. This is something that um, that they say right after that, right? They say, well, we know where this man comes from, and we know that no one will know where the Christ comes from when he comes. Ergo, right? A logical. Like, conclusion, this man can't be the Christ, right? And that's just horrible on all sorts of levels. But it's horrible because they made that whole thing up about we, don't, we won't know where the Christ comes from. I was trying to dig around how they could have come up with that. There's no prophecy or anything about that that I can find. Commentators and scholars seem to say, this seems kind of like an oral tradition, like a thing that has no root in Scripture. Like, it's like what we're talking about here, like pick random things that you like to believe, right, that make you, you know, fit your worldview or something so this doesn't really have any root in scripture the best maybe we can come up with is in Isaiah 53 Isaiah talks about as for his generation who can speak of it or something right but maybe they thought well then that means we won't know where he came from but really Isaiah is saying Jesus was cut off and didn't have a generation after him right he didn't have children he was cut off he was killed um, and then rose again so this one number two no one will come know where the Christ comes from is sort of Random and made up, but strangely and kind of funnily, they're kind of correct because of point number one that we just made, right? They don't know where he comes from. Like, they are wrong in that that's a prophecy, but the reality is they're actually saying the right things about themselves. They really have no idea where this man comes from. Number three, uh, they ask after he says, uh, I'll, I'm Where I'm going, you won't be able to go. They say, oh, where is he going? Is he going to go to the dispersion where the Jews have been spread out all over Asia Minor and Europe? Is he going to preach to the Greeks? Now, this is definitely, I mean, this has to be a joke. Like, they have to be saying this as sort of a, I mean, sure, he's a Jewish rabbi. There's no way in in a a million years that that he would ever decide that he was going to go bring, gain followers from around the area of the Greeks. And Greek in the New Testament ultimately comes to just mean, like, not Jew, Right. So they ask this sort of tongue-in-cheek or joking, like, where is he going to go? They have no idea what he's talking about. But again, the hilarious reality is, um, yes, he actually does intend to go to the Greeks, right? Not him, not him personally, but him through his disciples, right? Through the Apostle Paul that we just mentioned, and through the disciples that he sends out. Jesus does, in fact, intend to go to those ones that, that they would consider dogs, the ones they would consider you know not the ones that are entrusted with salvation in the gospel Jesus is going to bring it to those very people and these people are are accidentally again prophetic in asking their question does he intend to go to the, Bre- the Greeks to bring the gospel number 4 way they miss the point they ask the people sort of say this as a question maybe they're a little humbler they don't really know the bible as well right? they say is the christ to come from galilee the Pharisees are much more confident in what they think they know, so they say, well, no prophet arises out of Galilee. That's in verse 52 at the very end of the passage we read. Right? No prophet comes out of Galilee. And they just couldn't be more wrong about this. It's, it's really incredible. N.T. Wright, a fam- uh, well-known biblical scholar, points out that actually two prophets come out of Galilee, um, prophets that you would think the Pharisees would be familiar with. Jonah comes out of Galilee, and Hosea as well comes out of Galilee. Jonah, of course, is the prophet that spent three days in the belly of a whale, right? And then was spit out to go bring the good news to the broken city of Nineveh. And Jesus actually points to Jonah. When people are asking for a sign, he says, you're not getting a sign. You people, wicked generation, ask for a sign. The only sign you're getting is the sign of Jonah, who spent three days in the belly of a whale. So will the Son of Man spend three days in the belly of the earth and will come out and bring the good news, right? So, I mean, Christ's resurrection, then is the dissemination of the gospel throughout the world, the kickoff point. So Jonah from Galilee, prefigures Christ. Hosea, also from Galilee. Hosea is the one who we read his prophecy a little earlier. Um, He also prophesied, uh, after two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up that we may live before him. That's in Hosea. Hundreds of years, right, before Christ walks the earth. So two really important prophets that the Pharisees seem to have missed came from the region of Galilee. Additionally, um, just so we can beat down the Pharisees a little bit more, because that's always fun, right? So uh, in Isaiah chapter 9, it, it, Isaiah points out, or he, he prophesies about the Christ coming out of Galilee. So as you may know, the, the tri- Israel was divided into 12 tribes, and when they got the promised land, then they sort of dispersed bits of land to the different of the tribes, right? And so the tribes that got what re- the region that was ultimately called Galilee were the tribes of Zebulun and Naphtali, And Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 9, this is, again, chapter 9 is a really common prophetic chapter that we'll read during the Christmas season. Isaiah says, "Um, In the former time he brought contempt into the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, but in the latter time he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. So I don't know how the Pharisees missed that passage but yes, indeed, the Christ does come out of the Galilee, and they didn't realize even in the way that they said that. So the word they use there for for arises—it's uh, this Greek word. I took two years of Greek in college, and that's enough for me to only be allowed to use like one Greek word in a, in a message. So it's this Greek word egeiro, which means like to rise up. And in fact, it's always the word that's used when you talk about a resurrection, like a rising up from the dead, right? So again, sort of accidentally speaking prophetically, saying. Uh, no prophet arises from Galilee when in fact Christ from Galilee will indeed arise in the very literal sense of rising from the dead. Number five, uh, this, the, the Pharisees now in their frustration and anger say, this crowd that does not know the law is a curse, right? Because some of the crowds are beginning to follow Jesus, and the Pharisees are, you know, profoundly frustrated about that. And So the crowd is accursed, right? They just dismiss them with, because they don't know the law, right? And the reality, of course, is exact opposite, right? The Pharisees, who at least know more of the law probably than the crowd does, although they're still confused about it, they're the ones that are accursed, right? Because they're rejecting Christ, whereas the crowd who isn't super familiar with the law, and it almost seems in this passage that the less familiar they are with it, the more they're able to just see Jesus for who he is, Right? They're the ones who are not accursed, the ones who don't know the law in this passage, are the ones that Jesus calls to himself in salvation. Number six, uh, and this is just, maybe this is the best one. So they're, so they're frustrated, right, because they send out, the, the Pharisees send out these officers to go arrest Jesus. The officers, you know, come, I can imagine them with, I don't know, like you know, clubs or something and marching and like gonna get him and they hear him and they're like, huh, and they just start listening, right? And they start listening to what he says and they can't, they can't pull it off. They can't actually arrest him and they kind of like come like, I imagine like tail between their legs like back to the Pharisees. You know, Where is he? And they're like, listen, nobody ever talked like this guy before. We've never, like they're, all of a sudden they have like this entire, like their worldview just came crashing down like existential dilemma. They're just like, I don't know what to do with myself now, right? I do listen to Jesus. He, he ruined me because they were supposed to go arrest him and now they're asking all these questions about, about who they are and what they, what they have believed and whether this could, in fact, be the Christ. Pharisees, of course, are furious about that, right? So they have this little Pharisee powwow, maybe in the shape of, shape of a pea or something, you know, for a Pharisee. But they have a little Pharisee powwow and they, uh, they say, okay, you know, what is wrong with these officers? Because none of the authorities, none of the Pharisees have believed in Jesus. You know, in this powwow, like Nicodemus is kind of standing there. I just sort of like, Imagine him kind of like, you know, right, like, because he does, right? He's the one in John chapter 3 that went to Jesus, and Jesus, I mean, this is like one of the most famous passages, or some of the most famous verses, right? Jesus tells him, you must be born again. Nicodemus goes to Jesus by night, so he won't be seen that, as, as a follower of Christ. Jesus tells him, you've got to be born again. Jesus tells him... Um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, right? This is a really seminal passage in John when Jesus is speaking to the Pharisee Nicodemus, and Nicodemus now is standing around these Pharisees who are like, none of us have believed in him. What's wrong with these people, right? And uh, Nicodemus, in fact, has. So we have this whole range of responses to Jesus, right? From this guy is loony, like some people say he has a demon, to he might be a prophet, to, well, he's interesting, but he can't be because of what I think I know about prophecy, to, he's definitely the Christ, to, let's kill him, right? Like, it's 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 like just pure chaos, right? He just came in there and he just wrecked the whole festival, final day, pure chaos. And the reality is, most of these people were so busy casting Jesus in their own prefigured light, their own preconceived notions, that they missed him. The truth is that when we focus more on what we think we know about Jesus than on our relationship with him, we will always miss the point. When we focus more on Christianity as an academic exercise, that's not to say that we shouldn't learn things, right? But when Chris- if Christianity for us is just knowing some stuff and not knowing a person, then we've missed it, right? Because the people who knew the stuff were the Pharisees they knew a lot of stuff and they completely missed him. All the stuff they knew or they they thought they knew got in the way of Jesus who was standing there in front of them. In fact, um, in in John 5.39, Jesus has told the Pharisees, listen, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. Yet it's they that bear witness about me. And you refuse to come to me that you may have life. So talk about missing the point. The Pharisees, who are so dug deep into what they think they know about God and about about the, the Christ, Jesus says listen you're searching that because you think that you have life in your in your your hubris right and your pride and all the things that you're so proud of that you think that you know about God and and how right Jesus gives this example of the two men that he says which one of them does God hear their prayer right the Pharisee comes forward and He says, you know, the Pharisee came and he prayed and he said, you know, thank you God that I'm not like that guy and that guy and that guy and I, you know, I tithe and I I fast and I do all these wonderful things. Thank you that I'm not like that. And the other man, sinner, comes forward and says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that's the one God hears, right? He hears that one. He doesn't hear the Pharisee that's all puffed up in his pride and his knowledge about what he thinks he knows. So if for us, Christianity is purely a philosophical or an intellectual or just kind of an intellectual-emotional kind of thing, and it has no point of contact with the real Christ. The real Christ that walked the real earth and actually is alive. I mean, you, you know, you can't see him standing right here, but he's as real, as, more real than I am, right? The real Christ that says that he dwells among us whenever we're together. If your faith is, if our faith is not about a relationship with that Christ, then we've missed Christianity completely. We've missed um, this whole Christmas season of celebrating his advent, right? Celebrating the arrival of the God-man. God and man coming to make the ultimate sacrifice to bring us back to him. If we don't know him, then we've missed it. When we practice our Christianity through spiritual disciplines of scripture reading, prayer, worship, solitude, service, when we work out our faith with fear and trembling, when we serve one another, we're not just engaging in this intellectual exercise. We're actually working alongside God as he brings his love and grace into the world. Jesus says, listen, I don't call you servants anymore. I call you my friends. He calls us into what he's already doing, right? He gives us this opportunity to step into the kingdom. He says, it's at hand, like just take it, right? He calls us to that. He calls us to obedience. He calls us to listen to his voice. To know Christ, last slide there, is to be changed by him. To know him is to live in daily repentance. And I was going to say, I don't know about you, but I do know about you, right? You've got to live in daily repentance just like I do. I won't tell you all the things I had to repent of yesterday, but there was one crucial moment where I found myself profoundly frustrated about something unbelievably idiotic. And the way God brought me back to reality and to then realizing I needed to repent was I looked up and saw my children laughing at me. (laughs) I was being such a fool in that moment. They were laughing. Um, We are called to repentance every single day. So to know Christ doesn't mean to know stuff. It means to know him and to be called into repentance, which is like where we go this way and then we go the exact opposite direction, right? To be called into a life of repentance is what it is to live life with Christ, to live life filled with the power and spirit of God. It's the whole take up your cross and follow me thing, right? It's the mutilation of our flesh. It's killing every day, every moment, the parts of us that want to rise back up and take the reins, but we know that those parts don't have to, right? Because we've been freed from those things. It's putting to death the, the flesh every single day. That's our walk with Christ. It's not just knowing stuff about him. To know him is to be filled with him. To know him is to talk to him, to communicate with him, to think about life in light of him, to experience life in his light. To know, to know him is to know that we need him desperately. That we need him every single day, that we need him every single hour. That's my prayer for you, and that's my prayer for myself as well. Let's pray together as we close. Father, thank you that you have shown us our need for you. I suspect each of us have seen it in different ways. Maybe this morning, maybe over the past few days or this week, that we have seen that we need you desperately, and and we don't just need to know stuff about you. We want to know you more intimately Um, Not so we can feel good about ourselves, but so that we can bring your goodness, grace, love, and truth to a world that so desperately needs it. I pray that that would be true of us as a congregation, as your church, that we would obey you and your call to live life the way Christ lived and the way Christ is still living and what he's calling us into. Thank you for your love and thank you for the chance to be a part of that. It's through Christ's name we pray. Amen. And would you please stand with us and sing, I need thee every hour.